Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show. Today we're talking about the global food crisis. And it is a pleasure to welcome back onto the show Lawrence Haddad, the executive director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, also known as GAIN. Today's conversation provides clear insight and suggestions for philanthropists, business leaders, and policymakers alike on what can be done to tackle the food crisis and drive forward improved nutrition. In light of so many indicators pointing in the wrong direction, what can we do with the resources and powers at our disposal to improve the current state of affairs? That's the question for today. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lawrence as much as I enjoyed producing this episode for you. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to flesh out key insights and to share them with you week after week. So without further ado, Lawrence, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. My pleasure, Alberto. So today, let's talk about the the food crisis uh, that uh, so many of us are experiencing. You know, the, the whole world just seems to be in a negative light. There's Ukraine, there's uh, inflation, there's all sorts of issues with climate. It just seems that if you want to have uh, nutrition as something that's going to be leading forward our, our, our global humanity, we're not at a great uh, juncture. Yeah, and let's not forget COVID as well, because that, that hasn't gone away. I, I think that will probably come back again in, in the winter. So yeah, no, it's it's easy to be, it's easy to be glass uh, half full or even quarter full or one percent full uh there's so much negative stuff happening in the world but you know good nutrition is not just an outcome it's also a, a way of promoting resilience to all these kinds of shocks so the case for uh improved nutrition is, has never actually been stronger ironically the challenge is to re- is to mobilize resources that have uh resources and attention that have been that have diverted to you know the the short term, and so I'm spending a lot of my time trying to come up with uh, short term solutions that also don't undermine medium term uh, outcomes as well. I'm a bit worried. So I've been a bit worried seeing some of the uh, funders and donors only working on the short term and not, yeah, backsliding on environment, backsliding on a whole bunch of things that are really important. The system has generated many of these shocks, not all of them, but it's generated many of these shocks. So addressing these shocks without addressing the system is a band-aid. On that specific point, and in terms of, uh, you know, if we're looking at ESG, for instance, there, there are now people who are embracing ESG, but who have diverging views in terms of what that means. You know, do you do you support do you do you invest in defense companies or you do not don't? Uh, you're looking at food. Do you focus on uh, regenerative agriculture or do you try to just get as much food as you can on people's plates? Or uh, if indeed there is a dichotomy, but it just seems that a lot of the uh, the people with the big hearts, ostensibly, they themselves are in a state where there is uh, there isn't that consensus, right? Yeah, you need to find the things that are double wins, and it's not—it's e- easier said than done, you know, the double wins. But I think one of the one of the key double wins has got to be around uh, diversification. I think we're we're in a we're in a we're, we've been in a new normal for a long time, actually, and you know there are all these shocks. This 
this is going to keep happening. Climate change is driving everything in the background. It's like uh, it's prodding everything and it's going to make everything worse and that's not going away. So the next 20 years is going to be characterized by the same level of turbulence, I think, maybe even more. So what's the best insurance policy for that kind of uncertainty and turbulence? It's, it's diversification. And, and why is diversification good for the short term? Because it's usually you start with diversification by focusing on the, the most vulnerable. So I, I'm talking about diversification of energy sources that are used in agriculture, diversification of where we grow food, the kinds of foods we grow, um, biodiversity, diet diversity. Focusing on diversity means that you t- you immediately, your entry point is, is areas that are, are not being used for food, but could be crops that are not being grown, but could be and diets that are not as diverse as they could for, for low-income people, but they could be. So to me, diversity is a good way of, of getting those double wins. Yeah. In terms of operating in an environment that's not perfect, obviously, you, you, you do have frictions, you do have different considerations. Uh, there's some instances these days, I've been reading in the news, where governments aren't necessarily taking in the uh, uh, the advice from professional panels about what good nutrition looks like because they're just concerned about getting food out there and so forth. Um, there's a little bit of that tension as well, and that's a reality in, in the sort of uh, ambiguity or uh, messy environment in which we're operating. What do you make of all of that? Well, I mean, it's, you know, who'd want to be a government minister right now? It's, I mean, it's really challenging. And I'm, you know, often, often I'm quite critical of ministers, um, but, you know, it's not easy. Their job is not easy. So in the UK, for example, um, the UK just published that they, they commissioned, the UK government commissioned these two excellent uh, analyses and the development of a strategy for the UK's food system. They were Henry Dimbleby, who's the founder of Leon and, uh, and was working in the Department of Food and, and Environment in the UK. He came up with really two very good reports and said, here's a blueprint for what needs to be done. Very clear recommendations, costed, feasible. The the government then, the idea was the government in the UK would use those as a basis to develop its strategy. So the strategy just came out last week from the UK government. It's 25 pages long. It has very little substance in it. It doesn't feel terribly serious. And I've, I've I've tweeted my opinion. So it's a matter of the public record. Doesn't feel very serious. And the rationale the UK government gives is it's the wrong thing at this time when, when families are struggling with um, rising cost of food. We can't do anything that increases the cost of food. And I, you know, I think there may be some recommendations in uh, Henry Dimbleby's report that do increase the price of food. Um, but there's, there's ways in which you can protect the poorest. And many of the recommendations actually make the price of food cheaper. Um, so I, I, what I'm trying to say is I think this current situation genuinely makes it difficult for governments, but it also does give them cover if they if they're really not terribly serious about right. the first right. what are what are some of those things that the government could do that would bring down food prices that would be sensible and advisable? Well, I mean, it's not easy. Um, but they could be procuring food. And, and then, you know, covering some of the cost of that. They could be, I mean, in the UK, for example, they've given uh, cash transfers to every household in the UK. So I'm getting a cash transfer, right? I'm getting 400 pounds, my household. I don't need that money. And, and I, you know, most 
the, the, the wealthy people in the UK just don't need that money. Sorry. Uh, they've done that because it's, it's operationally easy to implement. I think that's the wrong message. They could have given my 400 pounds to uh, extend school meals for kids um, uh, in the summer holidays. You know, we're, we're coming up to the summer holidays in the UK. We're about five, four or five weeks away for schools and all the kids getting free school meals. They're going to, what are they going to eat um, during the summer months? So that's a very, very concrete example of how to not, how to target your resources better and um, take them away from people like me and give them to kids who come to school so hungry they can't concentrate. From the philanthropy perspective, because a lot of people listening to the show, very involved in the world of philanthropy, managing some endowments and so forth. What are some of the, the ways that you would suggest people start allocating these resources? I think they should be supporting organizations like GAIN, not GAIN, I'm not, it's not a pitch for GAIN, but there are lots of organizations like GAIN that are trying to adapt and trying to say, okay, we have to change that way we program things. And when you, when you change the way you program things to cope with new situations, there isn't necessarily a strong evidence base to support what you do because it's new. And so you have to take a few risks. And I think philanthropists are, uh, most of them come from the private sector and they have been very successful business women and men who have been, who've probably made uh, their, their fortunes through taking risk, calculated risk, but backing their instincts, backing their judgments, being willing to fail, but to learn from the failure and do things differently. They need to support organizations like ours who are trying new things to, 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 for new situations, but are the more the government funders will be much more reluctant to back us because they're they're saying, where's the evidence base? And so I think, you know, I think the philanthropies need to be the ones with a great, slightly greater appetite of risk, of risk in unusual times. I think there are also things that the philanthropies can do that are natural things for them to do and not natural for others. So for example, um, it's really boring, but data availability is really important. We really don't know much about um, who's being worst affected in which areas and which regions. We can guess, but we'd, we'd like to have more, more refined knowledge. So I don't know in, in the 10 countries that GAIN has big programs in, we don't really know what's happening to diets. We, we, we know that it's harder for families to get diets, to get um, adequate diets, but we don't know if they're protecting the kids to the detriment of the adults or not. We don't know if they're prioritizing calories to the detriment of healthy food or not. We don't know if they're going to, if they're if they're eating more foods that are more locally grown or not. We don't know if they're if they're resorting to junk food more or not. Because we just don't know what's happening, and th and yet there are data applications and data collection methods that are scientifically 90% okay, but are inexpensive and, and rapid and cheap uh, and, and can be done quickly. Again, typical data funders wouldn't fund that because it's only 90% valid. 90% uh, is, is good enough. 90% is better than 0%, which is what we have right now. So I think the private sector is much more pragmatic and I think philanthropists are quite pragmatic and I think uh, they don't have as many hoops to jump through and as, and as many 
uh, bodies to be accountable to as some of the more institutional funders do. So take some risks, um, do things that you're really good at. Uh, uh, analyzing and collecting data, the private sector is brilliant at that. Public sector is not very good at that. So just, just some examples, Alberto. Sorry, long answer. No, long answer, but, but great answer. And I guess th there must be an appreciation of the value of good enough, right? Like, I think the private sector has more of that than the public sector because the public sector has the luxury of waiting until it's perfect. And to be, to be fair to the public sector, some of the bodies that are in the public sector are norm setters. You know, they, they set standards, so their standards have to be really rigorous and empirical. But, you know, it's always in comparison to what? And it, it just feels like some data that are have some credibility is better than no data. The, the counter argument is bad data is worse than no data. And I, I totally buy into that, but we're way beyond bad data. What about the corporate space? What, what could they be doing to leverage their resources, their, their infrastructure to address the current uh, situation? Well, I think whatever they can do to reduce food loss and food waste is, is really key. Regenerative agriculture is really important. Um, but, you know, that, that feeds into the whole diversity narrative that I'm, I've been talking about. Um, I think treating their workforce well and treating their supply chains, making their supply chains more resilient is going to be really important for them. Paying a decent wage, uh, it may not be initially economically terribly attractive, but I think in the medium term, all the evidence I've seen looking at S&P 500 companies, is that these kinds of investments hit the bottom line in years one and two, but they begin paying for themselves in year three, four, and five. So whether whether the CEOs can keep the, the wolves at bay in year one and two to realize the benefits in years three and four and five, I don't know. But uh, so there are, there are quite a few things uh, they can do. I think um, also kind of not profiting from the situation as well. So there are things that they can not do that are that are beneficial. So we've seen a little bit of price gouging in some of the fertilizer sector, some of the food sector. You know, information is is Im, imperfect and asymmetric. And when that's the case, that creates space for price gouging. So resist that. Resist flooding of any um, affordability of healthy food vacuum. Resist filling that vacuum with cheap junk food. Um, make sure that your food quality standards don't drop. Just because we're in a crisis doesn't mean you can sell food that's slightly less safe. I mean, there may be some cases where you can, but don't don't use that as an excuse to sell food that you, you know is not quite right. Now, you touched on eliminating or reducing food waste. Uh, one of the things I read about quite a bit is about this... Uh, you know, the notion of having these sell-by dates or use-by dates, and sometimes the use-by dates or best-before dates, they prompt people to throw away food that would normally be perfectly perfectly healthy to eat, there would be nothing wrong with it. That That is definitely, the evidence is there that that's definitely the case. Sell-by dates are there to promote sales, not really to protect consumers. Um it's, it is also to, it is also, I guess the companies would say it is there to protect consumers, but also to protect themselves. Because if there's ever any any incident in the food safety world, it does tend to have a, 
a very negative impact on on the reputation of the company. But I think in general, sell by, oh, sorry, best buy or um, best buy dates, best consumed before dates are uh, a bit of a con. But but consumers are not going to really know how to navigate that. They they're going to they're going to abide by that. It's the power of suggestion. And which which consumer is going to take that risk unless they're desperate? But what what could companies be doing? They could be avoiding the buy two get one free on on junk food. Switch that switch that to healthier foods. You know, switch that to healthier foods. Um, that there's loads of things they can do. They've just got to have the mindset that they want to do it. They don't need my advice. They 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 just, they just need the they, they're so innovative. But my my advice to them is there is a commercial edge to being creative in this space. To doing the right thing will give you a commercial edge. the The only inability to do that is a failure of imagination. You you have to you'll find it. Are there any specific corporates that you're seeing uh, that you say, yeah, you know, these guys should be looked at as ins inspirational forces? They're they're really doing uh, good to the world. Well, you know, it's really hard to it's really hard to 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 say that because they're all different in different domains. Some of them are really good in environment. Some of them are really good in jobs. Some are really good in health. And there isn't sort of an overall brilliant one. I mean, we work we work quite a bit with Unilever. They're the usual ones that everyone brings up. They are good. They are good. Um, we work a lot with some of the smaller companies. Uh, there's there's one called Twigo in Kenya that we work with. That we really like a lot. Uh, Ajinomoto in Japan is quite good. Um, there are there are several, but uh, it's difficult to pick some out. And those that you like, you like them because of what? What is it about Twigo? And well, they're, they're trying. I think that I think they're trying to do the right thing without without obvious greenwashing, you know, or nutrition washing. I think that. So we're working with Google uh, at the moment. They um, they're really giving us some good advice on how to improve our our data collection and our our food system. Uh, data work. We're working with Gallup as well, who are really helping us. Gallup is saying, "Look, you want to collect data on diets? We've got a platform. We collect. We go to 140 countries every year and collect stuff about everything. We can add. Uh, we can add a 10-minute questionnaire on on diets. With we, you, you ask 20 questions, yes, no. You can do that in 10 minutes." And if and they they've done that and it's incredibly valuable what we get back, and so that's there are there are companies that are willing to work with us. Uh, Legal in general are doing some really interesting work um, on health equity stuff. Uh, really, there are there are companies that are doing good stuff. You mentioned data just now, and you mentioned also your ability or inability to have visibility into what's happening on the ground in these various markets. Uh, is that arguably the point to focus on if you're, say, a philanthropist? I mean, I think it's an area where there's a massive value add. I'm, I'm on the, um, you know, David Nabarro has been appointed um, one of the um, leads of the Global Crisis Response Group. So this is the UN Secretary General set this group this group up, and I'm on I'm on this this group that David's put together, and um, you know we're David's doing a fantastic job, but we are literally scrabbling around for stories of what's what's happening. We don't we've given up on hard data. We've got some data from the World Food Program, uh, but that's very specific and it's very it's it's only in a few countries. 
it's good, but it's not it's not as good as it's not good enough. Um, and then we're sort of scrabbling around for stories. Tell us tell us what's going on in your part of the world, and it just seems incredibly random, and incredibly patchwork and it's so I think data is very important I also think the work that journalists are doing is very important journalists in the countries on the ground telling the stories and you know journalism is, is, is the private sector too and they're a very important part of the private sector and whatever we can do to to support um, support people telling uh, vulnerable people's stories anything we can do there is really important too telling telling the stories of what's happening ukraine dominates the news and rightly so but there are many crises all over africa and asia and latin america those stories also deserve to be told they're not they're not as geographically concentrated but they're equally devastating i i, I call it the, the, the slow violence as opposed to the rapid violence in ukraine and so these anecdotes you say journalists can bring it up i guess uh, individuals and, and companies can bring it up. In terms of the data collection at scale, are we looking at it at the t technology companies, market research companies? Tech uh... companies. You can't get this data easily from sort of big data sources, sort of routine stuff, um, because internet use is so is so skewed, really. Uh, and then data collection, routine data collection points tend to favor higher income populations. So you could do some stuff on routine sort of transactional things that are data that's being recorded for other purposes could be in a, in a systematic way could be used for this in countries like the UK and the US and, and Europe and even in some Latin American countries. But for most most of the countries where most of the malnutrition and hunger is you have to rely on dedicated data collection and and most of most of the data collection in the 21st century is 20th century technology it's not quite people with clipboards but it's people with electronic clipboards but there's, there's still people so um there are there are companies like premise uh who have who have really revolutionized the way we think about data collection uh, you put out a call, you get 10 people, you screen the 10 people. Uh, it's a bit like uh, Uber for data. You know, you could get the 10 people, you screen them, you rate them, they go out. And the question is, what's happening with food prices in the 50 markets in Addis Ababa? They go out, within a week you have an answer to that question. And the answer is probably not quite as good as a survey that would take five months. But, you know, we don't have five months. So I can, I can get that data in a week. And the work I was telling you that we Gain is doing with Gallup, it asks actually 29 questions, yes, no questions. And you can get a really good approximation of not only how much people are eating, but what they're eating and what they're not eating. Uh, and that, that can be delivered. That doesn't have to be delivered through a platform like Gallup. That could just be done over the phone uh, or it could be done um, using this that similar kind of crowdsourcing technology where you put out a call for a bunch of enumerators who go out and collect, ask those 29 questions in 10 minutes. And you can get for, for tens of thousands of dollars, you can get a really accurate picture of what a country is eating as opposed to half a million to $3 million it normally takes. So there's, but this data is not sexy. You know, 
whenever I go to a donor, they'll say, well, how many people's lives will be saved if I do this? And I, I just can't tell them that answer. It's not that easy. But I can tell them that, you know, this many bad decisions will be averted and this many good decisions will be made. Uh, but I can't, I can't give them the, and most, most funders, whether it's institutional or philanthropic, do want to know what's the impact on, on real people. And I think that's fair enough. So that's the challenge with this, with this, this investment. I, I may, I may sound like a geek for saying this, but I think data is sexier than you, than you might think. Yeah. No, I think it's sexy, but I'm hard time telling it. <laughs> um, if you've got any advice, please yeah. give it to me. <laughs> So if we're focusing on the one hand, focusing on data, on the other hand, making sure that, that those methods for gathering this data are in the 21st century, that we're not using the pencil and the clipboard. Um, what about the, the third stage, about the analysis of that data? And you hear a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of these different um, models that will enable one to, uh, to understand and decipher what that, that huge amount of data is all about. Again, I think it's uh, it's this mindset of, you know, is 80% good enough? Uh, and I think in most cases, it is good enough. So AI and machine learning can get you a long way forward, actually. And then and then us mere humans, we can add the flourish at the end to sense check and and uh, and fill in the gaps, uh, the, the, the gaps that are more instinctive and, and experiential. We can do that. But uh, we need to rely a bit more on AI to get us most of the way, and we we use it uh, we we use it to, to to scan literature. And it's really quite effective to scan because you know there's thousands of journals, and each journal produces hundreds of articles a year. So even for a, an army of postdocs, it's really hard to survey the landscape, especially when you you're looking at a field as broad as food systems. There's everything from schools to you know floods uh, and everything in between. You need AI to to just scan literature, and it's pretty good at so doing you're, it. You're you're leveraging AI platforms for literature reviews. Well, we work with folks at Cornell, and uh, we work with folks at uh, the um, Hopkins Physics Lab as well to do that. Yeah, we've got some really interesting work going on. You know, we have this food system dashboard that uh, links hundreds of variables, uh, hundreds of indicators with hundreds of countries. And so we, you can get a really detailed profile of a country. Um, so that, so the, can, the question is, can you link that profile of that country? Here is, uh, here is Benin with um, data on 300 indicators. It's really hard for a human being to make sense of those 300 indicators for Benin. Can we get uh, machine learning and AI to look at the 300 indicators and say the diagnosis is this and the link that the things that you should begin considering are these 10 interventions and i think i think we're going to get there and so that so that again it's 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 what i was saying it's the 80 percent uh, there's 300 variables for benin no one can really make sense of that um, uh, in, a, in a system way so we need ai to look at the 300 and say okay based on this profile and based on what other countries have done with different profiles or similar profiles, we think you should think about school feeding, biofortification, um, pr promoting SMEs, regenerative agriculture, and something. I think we can get to that. How can I get my hands on that dashboard? It's, it's foodsystemsdashboard.org. It's a fantastic uh, repository and uh, showcase for the data. And there is some diagnostic work in there as well. 
but the real the real value add is when we can we can say based on that profile these are the 10 things that are evidence-based and have worked in other places and you should consider them when when it's not prescriptive it's just saying here's a place to start and touching on the point a little bit earlier about good enough and now based on this dashboard you're telling me and recommendations for different countries and so forth we know that smoking is bad for you no, no matter where you live or who you are it doesn't bode well statistically speaking are there things that you've learned over time now that you may not have seen country x you may not have analyzed country x but you know that it's going to be bad for country x or good for country x to do a b or c because the anecdotal evidence the statistical evidence it's just so profound across the board everywhere you go that you can pretty much project that diagnosis onto that country x there are things that we we call no regrets actions they may not be the the most effective thing to do in your country but they are going to be effective you won't regret doing them and so anything to do with anything to do with the making fruits or vegetables or pulses more productive um, making them a lower price anything to do with that is going to be you, you're not going to worry about doing it because it will generate livelihoods it'll it'll be good for whether you're worried about diabetes or stunting it, that'll be good it'll be good for the for the kids um, so there's that and I think on the other side we know that excessive consumption of ultra processed foods is just something to be avoided um, and so anything that you can do to curb the sale of those kinds of foods to especially young children is again is going to pay for itself your health system will love you for it you will if you have a state state funded health system you're going to save billions of dollars if you have a private sector health system you're going to save billions employers are going to save billions in premiums for their employees uh, it's just it's and 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 of course that's discounting all the environmental benefits fruits and vegetables and yeah so there are certain foods that you need to focus on are there certain interventions that are kind of no regrets interventions i think there are there are things like you know most countries have big social protection programs um, cash transfer school feeding these kinds of things but most of them are focusing on quantity of food not quality of food so public procurement governments buying that food for those programs they should really think about uh, are there ways at a, at, at the same within the same budget to really produce healthier foods and very often there sometimes there are not but very often there are and they just and governments just haven't looked or they're or they're locked into assumptions that are 20 years old and then i think you know research priorities so this isn't something for the immediate this is something for 10 20 years down the road but the research priorities the re- the priorities are all on the wrong crops from a health and environment perspective they're all on staple crops uh, because because staple crops are important for keeping people's bellies full which are important for votes and getting reelected um and that logic is very powerful and I, i if i was a politician i think i would i would i would feel it would feel very compelling to me but there are economic opportunities and environmental positives and health positives from focusing on uh foods that are not staple crops fish and eggs and as i said beans and nuts and seeds these are important sources of nutrients good for the environment 
and 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 they have lots of economic opportunities attached to them because they tend to be foods uh, that are quite aspirational. So it sounds to me actually that there are quite a few areas where the 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 philanthropic endowments and philanthropic mindsets can focus their their attention to drive things forward. And since you touched on the economic opportunities, likewise for those sort of social investors, impact investors, ESG investors, right? Yeah, and I think uh, I just want to ram home the point that I um, I would be looking to philanthropies for for taking a few more risks than other types of investors and funders can. And by that, I don't mean wild seat of the pants things. I mean calculated risks. So I look to philanthropies to be a bit more enterprising in their carry that sense of entrepreneurship of failing fast but but trying things carry that into your don't suddenly become super conservative when you get into the philanthropic space mm. are you feeling optimistic for the immediate and medium term future let's let's put the 2030 thing aside for a second but how are you feeling about the the coming months and years i think things are going to get worse before they get better um, unfortunately, because so many things are going in the wrong direction, price of energy, price of fertilizer, price of food. And I'm really, we're focusing on the price of food a lot, but farmers have to buy inputs and the price of inputs is going up faster than the price of food is going up. So the price of food going up is actually an opportunity for farmers if the price of inputs is not going crazy, but the price of inputs are even worse. So farmers are really getting squeezed. Eventually, the supply blockages will become less. Uh, eventually, the trade restrictions that have gone up will be pulled down because it's bad for the countries that have put them up as well as the countries who are dependent on them. Eventually, the price of energy, I hope, is, is sort of dependent on the on the length and duration of the war, but the price of, of uh, energy will go down. The thing that really worries me about this crisis, unlike the 2007-2008 crisis, is that this one comes a year after global GDP was sort of minus 5%. If you look at 20, 2007, GDP growth the year before was quite strong globally. So this is kind of a crisis on top of a pretty hollowed out system. So I'm expecting the hunger numbers, which are going to be published next month from the UN, you know they went up. They went up by 118 million last year. I, I'd be amazed if they went up by less than 60 million this year. Um, so that will take us into the 850, 840 territory, and that's that's pretty scary. So I think things will get worse before they get better. But I think I, what I'm spending a lot of time is talking to governments and businesses, saying when you invest in the short term, don't forsake the medium term. You don't have to. It's a false dichotomy. There are some things you can do that are really good for the short term that are, are good or not damaging to the medium term. And, and one, of the, one of the things I keep telling people is think about diversification. Diversification has a bit of a bad name because, in a, as I said, in a frictionless world with perfect information, which most economists like to think is the case, it's the second best solution. You know, economists like to set up models that uh, that reduce complexity, but the moment they start doing violence to reality is when they need to abandon the models and come up with new ones. And it feels like we're it feels like we're in a we're in a this has been a, such a big shakeup, you know, climate, COVID, and conflict. It feels like we're on the verge of a radical rethink of 
just what is it that we are trying to do here? Um, and that may be hopelessly naive, but I, I see I see lots of lots of governments and lots of businesses thinking about this. Most, you know, not not so much in an altruistic sense, but just in a kind of a self-preservation sense. How are we going to how are we going to build our resilience? How are we going to ma- how are we going to maintain our capacity to keep going in the light of all of these shocks? The philanthropists, especially the ones that have benefited from uh, investments in the stock market, they understand this. They diversify their portfolios, and they have different levels of risk according to the the, the nature of the environment. And I think I think we now, as a as a food system community, need to start thinking more about diversity. And and the food system framing really helps that because you've got so many different areas of action to operate in you can you can be more diverse yeah i wish um this is a this is a conversation we could have for hours um too bad we only have half an hour for today um it really is great having you back on the show and it's a very sobering topic i think under the circumstances the uh, all the indicators are really not pleasant uh to look at uh, what's the um what's the key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind today after they finish listening to today's show uh, one, it's not hopeless. This is not destiny. It's not fate. We can change this. A lot of these things are the result of human action, so we can counter them. Uh, number two, don't don't forsake the medium term in your um, energy and drive and passion to, to fix the short term. There are options that you have available that can do both. Uh, and I think the third thing is think about your fundamental assumptions about your business models or your governance models. Because I think we're in a phase now where shocks are just the norm and that climate change is doing that. That's not going away. So it's a, t- it's a chance to, to rethink. Don't build back better, build forward better. I love it. I love it. Lawrence, thank you very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast. Great seeing you again. Likewise, Alberto. Always great to see you and hear you. And thanks for the great questions. And thanks for what you're doing. You're one of the journalists that I very much appreciate. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Lawrence Haddad, the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show. Thanks so much for tuning in and I'll catch you next week.